Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no tell. Welcome to In the Know. <laughs> Let's get started. Thank you, uh, Jeff Sutherland, for agreeing to be part of this series about making something big. That's what it's about. I don't know if you regard yourself as a master of the canon on this topic, but you are. In my class at Columbia, we just read your book, the Scrum book, alongside a few other things. And I think so much of the core of those ideas, which I took in their initial kind of presentation and in their origin story to be things that came from software and how to make right. software. So much of that is just useful in virtually every quarter of business and making new things and of making change and even just daily life. I mean, handling your bills using a later box seems like a better way to live than doing every single thing on the day that it comes into the inbox, you know? Right. Scrum itself actually comes from the implementation side of it comes from my 11 years experience as a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force. And the theory behind it that that helps uh, understand how to implement well comes out of my medical school background. I was a professor of radiology, biometrics, and preventive medicine for 11 years. When I was pulled into a big banking company out of the medical school, they said, hey, Jeff, you know, you guys have all the knowledge about certain technology we're using. I was doing uh, massive supercomputing, modeling the human cell, trying to figure out what caused cancer. And the technology we're using was being used by the big banks, uh, particularly in rolling out automated telesystems back in the 80s. And the bank made me an offer that my wife couldn't refuse, and I wound up at the bank as vice president for advanced systems. Basically, the CTO, they were running 150 banks. Basically, I was CTO for 150 banks. So I'm working on the technology strategy, but I'm also watching the projects of the bank, and they're all late. Uh, when they're late, the managers were having more meetings and more reports and just making it later. I went into the CEO's office and I said, you know, Ron, all your projects are late. Have you noticed? <laughs> he said, said, yeah, at least four CIOs call me up every morning. And they scream at me. And I said, well, it's not getting any better. They're using this thing they call a Gantt chart. It has thousands of tasks with names and dates on them. And I've calculated the probability that one of these tasks slips and makes the whole project late. And the probability is 0.999999. You're virtually certain to be late for the rest of your life. It's a totally inappropriate technology for what you're doing. So I said, well, he said, well, what should I do? I said, we're going to have to install a completely different operating system. I said, give me the worst business unit in the bank, the one that's losing the most money, and uh, we'll set it up as a completely different way of working. Uh, based on uh, the last 10 years, I've been working with Bell Labs. I know how the guys that invented C and invented Unix, I, I know how they work in small teams. And uh, so I know the teams need to be small and we need to run on weekly cycles and everything needs to be live every week because, you know, that's what they do. The guys I work with at Bell Lab and uh, Monday morning, we'll have product marketing come in and prioritize everything by business value. And Friday afternoon, it will be live at 150 banks. And I said to do this, I need everybody, everybody, sales, marketing, support. And you guys, senior management, can be my board of directors. We'll meet once a month. I'll explain what's going on. But the rest of the time, you need to stay out of there because it's going to be really different. So he agreed to do that. Within six months, it was the most profitable business unit in the bank. And they said, hey, Jeff, you know, you guys are making all the money. We're going to give you another $20 million to invest in the product, but actually Scrum, what the first prototype of Scrum driving that product. So that was 
know, I had about 15 million in the medical school from the National Cancer Institute for the research I was doing, building small teams for computing. But then in the bank, uh, you know, I had this business unit and then they, they gave me 20 million more to invest. So by now I got $35 million into the invention of Scrum and it's only 1983. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I honestly cannot believe it. I mean, the story I'm sure you've told a thousand times and it's a famous story. But you present it as if, to like borrow from Greek mythology, like, you know, Athena sprouted whole from your head. You walk into the meeting with the CEO and you're like, everything's wrong. <laughs> Give me. I mean, what you just summarized is still the prescription. Yeah, How exactly. could it sprout whole from your head? I mean, and, and how is it that, Bell, you saw them do this? I mean, the, the lore is NASA style phase gate or mythical man months. And those guys don't say do this. Well, you know, on the one hand, my natural training as a fighter pilot is built into Scrum. So that's the natural reaction to uh, of a fighter pilot to someone that's losing the war <laughs> is to do something radically different. But in the medical school, my biological simulation was all around complex adaptive systems theory. So I began to approach everything like that because not only is the cell a complex adaptive system, but a human is. So is a team. So is a company. So my approach to implementing the first scrum was how do you implement a intelligent goal-seeking system that iterates and self-organizes to achieve the goal? And what we learned in uh, studying cells, which became cancer cells, is that small changes to the cellular environment will cause the cell to move into a different state. And so with small changes, you can migrate a cell through the state space and it can go in a negative direction into a malignant cell. We found we could take a cancer cell and make it go backwards into a normal cell. So I knew I'd been steeped in this for over a decade. How do you make systems get smarter and evolve quicker? Okay. So it was a natural thing for me to, to just say to the CEO, you know, it, it just it needs to be completely different the way you work. So there's sort of two threads in there. One is that small changes can have big impacts. And the second is that what powers it is the nature of a complex adaptive system that's regenerative and evolutionary. And those small changes start amplifying out and then they, they run away on their own. I mean, I guess the bad ones right. with every project running away and the good ones with one team lapping all the other teams. And I guess your origin story, it's cool because it, it does provide the conceptual foundations. And I guess like, you know, the Air Force, John Boyd, the OODA loop, you want to lay that out a little bit? Is that what you mean? Like when you're losing the war, you got to change yeah, everything? Yeah, I mean, the OODA loop is fundamental to Scrum, you know, being able to observe as soon as you engage you're actually flushing out the opposition. And so you want to immediately reorient, redecide, and re-engage from a, ideally from an unexpected angle that disrupts the opposition. And so the ability to do this, uh, particularly the product owner in Scrum needs to do this to deal with the market turned inside the OODA loop of the competition, but also implementing agile within an organization. You have to have that same mentality because it's very hard to change organizations and it it requires adaptability, <laughs> you know, rapid adaption to deal with impediments and, and move them out of the way. So all this thinking is just fundamental to the way Scrum works. And it was all the fighter pilots I know, this is built into muscle memory. And um, Martial artists have the same kind of training. I, I spent many years studying Aikido, and it's the same thing in, in a martial art. As soon as you engage, you have to respond and turn inside the 
Una loop of the opponent. There's, so, a, there's another like interesting implication though of the way in your longer form work you've laid this out. What I take you to say is, and in your story it seems to happen, it's like give one small team this process and freedom and they will change the whole organization. They will change the yes. culture by accomplishing. Like there is a tangible and visible cultural artifact that is produced from the productivity of this team, and that will change others. Not that you got to like roll out trainings, but rather that you got to unleash a team. Right. I mean, our recommendation today is start small, get a small set of teams working well, and once that happens, it will be noticeably better, and then people will naturally want to try it out, or at least the more adaptive people within the organization will want to try it, and then it will spread. It's really a one of my challenges was, as I began to formalize Scrum, it took 10 years to formalize it, working on it in many different companies, is I knew I needed something like the Lockheed Skunk Works, where they built all the advanced aerospace technology, and they could do it 10 times as fast for a tenth of the cost by putting guys in the California desert where no managers could go. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, so, so I knew I needed a Skunk Works but I had to be able to implement it in corporate headquarters because I, I knew I couldn't get the people to go to the California desert. And so Scrum is designed to be a virus that's introduced into corporate headquarters that if it's allowed to replicate, it will totally transform the organization. How do you protect the people if you don't give them a desert? The whole thing about Scrum is that originally it was for the people because the very first team that became formally Scrum, which we should talk about where that term came from. At the time I was working with them in a company called the Easel Corporation in 1993, they were building a new software product, but they were having a lot of problems. They had a lot of bugs. People are working late. They're working weekends. The management thinks they're all bad developers. And uh, at the time I was working with as a volunteer for a nonprofit organization based on the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh where they were lending small amounts of money to really poor people, mainly in South America, for the group I was working with. And we found that by getting a small group of people together, having everybody come up with a plan, and then checking in regularly, in a couple of weeks, people who couldn't feed their children all of a sudden have enough food and are actually enough money for clothes and putting the kids in school and ramping their business. And in six months, they're building a new house. And I came back from a meeting <laughs> of the President's Council to my software team after lunch with a lunch meeting. And I, I said to the software team, I said, you know, you guys are always late. You're always behind. You're always under pressure. How long has this been going on? And every single person said as long as they had been working in software development, they'd been late and under pressure and working long hours. And I said, I asked them, do you want to spend the rest of your life like this? They thought about it for a minute. And they said, no, we don't. In fact, I said, I have some ideas that if I think if we implemented, we could get have so much great software in six months that the customers and the managers would ask us to slow down and then we could take back our power as individuals, regain our dignity as people, start spending time with our families. And I asked them, do you want to try it? And basically they said, we've got nothing to lose. Why not? Okay, so this was the actual trigger for the formal implementation of what became Scrum. It was actually to save their lives to regain their dignity, to be real people instead of under this constant grind. And so 
it's not about protecting the people, it's about freeing the people <laughs> from essentially slavery. That traditional waterfall process, they reminded me of slaves rowing Roman galleons with someone, you know, a guy with a whip, <laughs> cracking the whip and rowing them day and night, okay? So the whole idea with Scrum is to release people from their chains, basically. And that's why the first team decided to do it. Well, I mean, part of the deal is you release them from the chains, but the execs are still in the building. Yeah. Here's what I told them. I said, if you give these guys twice as much software and it's twice as good, I can keep them off your back. And, and I have a way of approach that will easily do twice the software and twice as good. We could do actually much more than that. It turned out we could deliver about 10 times as much amount of software and it was 10 times better software. So it was easy to satisfy the managers. Once you had some time because you were shipping, and once you start shipping, then the managers leave you alone. But that first ask yeah. of give me a week, give me two weeks, give me a month, whatever, that's just a handshake. Please give me a month. Right. Okay, so the way it worked with the CEO when I was starting this off, he came to me, and we were supposed to ship a new product in six months. He came to me, he wanted to know what the plan was, and I said, you know, I bet you want a Gantt chart. And he said, yeah, a Gantt chart. I said, how many times have you got a Gantt chart that's actually been correct? And he said, well, never. in 25 years of this business, I have never seen a Gantt chart that's correct. <laughs> and I said, well, I would be really stupid to give you another wrong Gantt chart. I've got something better for you. We're going to work in short iterations. And at the end of each iteration, we're going to have working software. You're going to be able to sit down at the keyboard and actually use it and see if you like it or not. And that will be much better than a Gantt chart that's something that is make-believe. And he said, yes, it would be better than a Gantt chart. I said, well, to do that, I need you to stay out of the development area during a sprint. He started to look real serious. And I said, if you do that, at the end of the sprint, when you actually test the software yourself, you can change anything if you want, but only at that time, not in the middle. And he basically said, I can live with that. That's how we got it started off and kept the the leadership away from the team so that they could actually perform. What's visible to the manager, because the manager needs to see stuff, what's visible is work, working, work product, not a right. plan. Right. And the point of control, instead of being all up front, is at every step. Right. And the sequence of steps and how you design those steps, I guess the team's got to do that because they got to get to a finish line every week or every two weeks. And so they got to yeah. think about what can I do in this amount of time that'll actually work at the end that's better than what I had yesterday. I had a high-level plan, actually, for three years. I said, here's the basic trajectory of what we're going to build. It's going to go out in many releases over three years. But every month, these are the new features that are going to be appearing. And so he had a high-level plan. But then it was the working product rather than the Gantt chart that was the inspection of what was going on. And even a monolithic project, you know, let's make the iPhone and launch it with grace pomp and circumstance in January 2008, or uh, let's make a faster database, in your view, can be broken down into parts and put into an order. Absolutely. I mean, everything, if you watch what people do, they always do things in some order. And you can take advantage of that. They not only do things in some order, but they're constantly interrupted and constantly running into blocks that force changes in the order. It doesn't matter what they're building, iPhone, they're writing laws in the legislature. <laughs> it doesn't matter what people are doing. They do it in steps. They run into problems. They're interrupted. And so Scrum is a framework that not only solves the problem, but takes advantage of that phenomenon to actually produce better stuff. So schedule the interruptions. 
which lets you not be interrupted. The work of reporting gets concentrated at certain moments. The change orders can only come when you have actually completed something because you don't have the end of a sprint unless something's completed. So you're not throwing away incomplete work in a process like that, I suppose. Um, But the end product is always like a tangible working item at the end of any sprint. And on that, I mean, you know, some people like to sit and think. One of the most interesting areas, of course, I had come out of a research background. Uh, I was funded by the National Cancer Institute for 11 years to collect and analyze massive amounts of data on cancer patients. So that's the environment I came out of. And today we have major research institutions using Scrum. Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab is the leading naval research lab, and their senior leadership says anything that has more than one person, we want them doing Scrum because if we time box, if we build out a research plan at a high level, and then we time box all the research tasks, we get twice as much done. And if we have the researchers talking to each other regularly, we get better quality results. But can abstract work ship on a sprint schedule? Or is there no such thing as abstract work? We had an interesting discussion about this uh, the other day because a lot of times creative work, you have to kind of think about it for a while, sleep on it, you know, and then all of a sudden your unconscious is working on the problem and then all of a sudden you get a great idea. And uh, the challenge is to improve the flow, you have to be if you time box a series of tasks and then you don't start unleashing the great idea until it's ready and you quickly make it happen, you just get better ideas a lot faster. When I was writing my PhD thesis, for example, my wife was on me constantly. When is this thing going to be done? You know, it took five years to get done. It was only when I got my thesis advisors to agree on a definition of done, which is very important to Scrum. <laughs> and, th- and then I had a clear set of steps to reach that definition. That was the only way I cl- closed off this five-year project. And if I had gotten more clarity on that, I probably could have done it in half the time if I had been a little hmm. more disciplined. What today we know is Scrum. Maybe I understand what you're describing on creative work or, abs- or conceptual or abstract work as um, work in drafts. Like there's a draft due every Friday, and it may yeah. turn out that in the fifth turn of this, you actually throw out all the prior work, and you've got a whole new direction right. that you're starting to float. Is that roughly how to take it? Like I got to write some jokes for a big Saturday yeah. Night Live episode or something. I should just be turning in a ton of jokes every day. Well, it's just like people writing a book. They need to write two thousand words every day, no matter what. Right, and and, and so that's I, the visible output of the work. Or I mean, in, in my experience. Sometimes with, uh, you know, an engineer who says they need to, like, refactor or if someone tells me they want to, like, select a new architecture, let's say. Those do have vapor trails of visible work, too. I mean, if you're refactoring, you should be commenting and just putting a little, like, thumbprint on every section, you know, of the code that you opened. Or if you're exploring some architecture, you should be sketching and leaving a trail of of notes and ideas as you've been developing different directions. If you're trying to come up with, you know, a great new direction for your dissertation, well, you've read books. So if you're reading them, you should be writing notes about them and from time to time summarizing what you came up with, right? I mean, like, it's the type of work that for many, the habits are not to produce visible outputs. Right. And in a way, the visible work is more it's like modular and it can be consumed and then reassembled by other people. I find that to be, I mean, right. it turns it, it makes it more social once it's out of your head. Right. And th- that's another thing. The, the social aspect of this was really important. And, and the first scrum team, I pointed out to them that building a piece of software at the time had become a team activity. 
you know, in the early days, one guy could do something and actually sell a product. By the time we were doing it, it required a team, and now it takes many teams. And so learning how to do teamwork while you're building stuff is at the core of being great in this domain. It turns out to be similar in other domains, too. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. And how about schedules? I mean, I guess I can accept that when Apple was working on the iPhone, they just stayed quiet for a long time until they felt they were close and then they were ready to announce it. The unpredictability of when will you be at good enough, let's say. But now they have to release something every year. And there's, you know, we, we know the month when they're going to do the announcement every year. And I don't actually know if they've deeply adopted Scrum and Agile as their methodology. But if you were in charge and you're running it this way, like, how do you keep a calendar? So the product owner for the iPhone knows that a year from now, he's going to release a new version of the iPhone. So the question is, really, what are the options and what are the potential enhancements that is going to make this a better device? And so that that is a big research challenge. But there's probably many already on the table, things that people wanted to do, have thought about doing, couldn't do in this version. So he's got a ton of, of possible stuff already on the table. And the question is, what are we going to do for the next release of the iPhone? And that will probably lead into investigation. You know, investigations of, okay, what processor are we going to use? Are we going to have a faster processor? If we're going to make it thinner, how do we shrink uh, all the pieces? You know, if we're going to make the glass cover more of this thing, how's that all going to work? So that's going to be a, a bunch of prototyping, testing, and trying to think about how this is going to all get pulled together. Uh, I don't know how soon they have to come to closure on that. Probably several months before it's actually shipped, they actually have to have the final production design. So you call the teams in and you're like, okay, what's baked? You've been releasing weekly for almost a year. I know you wanted to get to this point and you're not at this point. So what you've got actually isn't going in at all. Or somebody else is... 85% 85% of the way to their goal, but actually the, the damn thing's pretty good. And so we're just going to call that, you know, face ID or whatever, and uh, we'll ship that. And so you sort of pick from a menu of the things that are on the kitchen counter and you put that together and, and that's your like go live decision and everything else will have to wait for the next window, I guess. So right, sort of like right. the release cycle 
It's like a reverse scant, I guess. <laughs> whoever meets me at noon at Grand Central right. Station is going on the train, and whoever's not there can catch the next one. Yeah, I mean, I think this is similar. When I was in medical school, our department chair had the habit of doing research for a couple of years, then writing it up as a grant proposal, got funding, and then I'm not sure how legal this all was, <laughs> but then he would use that funding to first publish the research he promised, but also kick off the research for the next level to create the next proposal. So oh, his actual proposal is basically stuff that's pretty much all done. And this is the same thing with the iPhone. The actual proposed iPhone is stuff that's all done, that's been being researched over the last so many years. Right. So you know, it's put, in Cupertino now, and they're going to announce it in a few months. Right, right. All the pieces are evolving and getting better. And at certain times, there are opportunities because of new materials or new techniques to take advantage of something they already know, but maybe it's too expensive today, but now tomorrow they figure out, hey, there's a way to cut this fence. So like one of the really famous applications of your ideas, and I guess this is infinite list, but in, in recent memory, it's like Harper Reed and his colleagues in the healthcare.gov cleanup effort. Do you feel that penetration of these ideas in back into the government from which they came apparently is uh, happening and working? I mean, you're in DC today, there's that, there's that digital service Obama set up and are we changing even these huge monolithic well, institutions? They're definitely, you know, for the Department of Defense, it's the law that IT projects must be agile. So wow. <laughs> they, it's hard to avoid that. I mean, they're doing a good job of delaying it as long as possible. But, for example, I started training a company in Europe in 2006. And they were doing big defense contracts, stuff like that, not only for Europe, but they were actually doing working on U.S. projects. They were a partner of Lockheed. So and uh, some a few years after that getting working, where they could deliver the stuff for ha half the cost, much higher quality for half the cost, a Lockheed came in for it with a bid, a big radar bid. I think it was a $785 million radar contract that was going to build at half the cost using Scrum. And they took that radar system away from a, a big defense contractor we work with, they came to me and said, Jeff, we have to do Scrum to deliver at half price. And the government has told us we're never going to get another contract unless we deliver at half price. And right now we have to bid on a billion dollar system at 500 million. You have to show us how to deliver that. The vendors are starting to get pushed into agile practices which deliver systems at much less cost with higher speed and higher reliability and quality hmm. systems. So that's wow. happening, not as at larger scales we would have, we'd want it. In some other areas, for example, the reason health.gov is so broken is because it's not the law that the Department of Health has to use Agile. And so we are There's an institutional risk. gravity both towards the past, but also to the like sort of manager's yeah. bad habit of give me a plan and give me a deadline. Right. So there's another feature there. I'm curious. I want to thank you. Like inside your organization, it's like so clear how you do it, right? But like one of the, the key issues in even that one, healthcare.gov, is where there's a bunch of fairly loosely joined vendors that are relied upon in the system. And they're going to kind of meet at the end date. And you can run one or two or three of these streams uh, with Scrum. And maybe these other guys aren't doing it. They're just some monolithic deployment process. That seems like a unique variation when you're dealing with others, basically. That's quite common when you have waterfall vendors or a waterfall part of an organization. And 
part of the organization is uh, agile using Scrum most often. And what happens is that the failure rate of traditional project planning is much higher than the agile project planning. So most of the time, the agile people are going to be done and the waterfall people aren't. So we train the people on how to deal with, with that problem. But from a system management point of view, those kind of projects need to be managed so that there's working pieces visible and the traditional waterfall vendors cannot wait for two years to show something that's working. Right. Uh, Open an API early so I can just yeah. race past you and maybe we'll get you, we'll convince you to change how you're doing it at a certain point. And it's supposed to be a bunch of large companies like famously Amazon with its like all service oriented architecture, I guess almost 15 years ago, decided to build loosely joined entities where everybody could move as fast as possible because everybody had an always open API into the, the services, you know. There's an interesting dynamic I wanted to explore on this, you know, where these sort of internal teams or these assortments of vendors are kind of racing against each other. The positive feature of it, of course, is momentum, gathering credibility for this approach, actually making more progress and doing it less time. But there's another side, which is this kind of competitive dynamic. Hey, why are we being pit against each other? Aren't we all supposed to be working together? Why are these guys, you know, doing a little dance every week or two? Why don't they have to publish? Like, I mean, you must have run into this kind of internecine uh, organizational conflict that, that people sort of point to as competition. Well, let's take healthdog.com, how that was rescued. You know, $500 million later, I think they had 24 of the biggest contracts in the United States working on it. They turned it on and they couldn't sign a single person up for insurance. So Obama talked to the CTO of the company that actually did all his voter targeting and fundraising, and that was a scrum company. He asked them to find somebody to fix it. So we went to Silicon Valley, and he brought a half a dozen people back to Washington. The first thing they did was fire the prime contractor because they had totally mismanaged the project. And they found a contractor they liked in Washington, created a war room, and that effectively ran two daily scrum meetings a day, actually running scrum around the clock. And the goal is then to build a backlog where you actually have visible working people signing up for insurance, you know, so at the top of the backlog is, you know, nobody signed up yesterday, who's going to sign up today? And then the next day, more people. And then six weeks later, 7 million people signed up. That was the goal. So it took six weeks for six people to rescue all these vendors who spent a half a billion dollars. That's a pretty easy rescue, right? So it's all about agile management. If they had had these guys running it from the beginning, I mean, there's a great story about a welfare system in Florida in one of Mary Poppinick's lean books, $180 million for waterfall. The same equivalent system in Minneapolis was done for $3 million with Agile. But to address this question of competition, what you're just saying is result. I mean, right. people As, have feelings, that sucks, but let's just get behind the results. They happen so fast, they're so big, they're so disproportionate. Why are we talking? Right. And today, all the big vendors know about Scrum. And most of them are claiming to do it. It's not that they don't know about it. It's, is there, do you have agile leadership uh, driving the project? Let's zoom out a little bit to leadership. I want to investigate a little more. So let's say you're an all-scrum house and we no longer have the evil empire to today. You know, there's no waterfall across the street. Right. But right. it's all-scrum. And the, the progress of the teams is sort of visibly different, right? Some are moving a bit faster. Some are doing harder stuff. Some are doing whatever. I mean, in all managerial contexts, there is a certain element of like a horse race, perhaps, between different contributors. What's your feeling there? 
Well, my company, uh, Scrum Inc., runs totally with Scrum. And so we have six or seven teams. I was just in a meeting today where they were all were doing their sprint review all together. Everybody has a few minutes to report out. And every team has a picture of, you know, what was our goals this week? What's our longer-term goals? What did we deliver this week? What's happening? So you get a, a picture of the whole organization. And it's all scrubs. It's visible to everybody where we are, what progress has been made, who's doing what, and how it's all coming together. So the challenge for leadership is creating an environment where you have energized teams demonstrating together that visibility. And so leadership is important, but traditional micromanagement is actually counterproductive. So is there a role for take that hill? Let's get behind me. We got to march. We can't fail. It's not an option. Well, the whole product owner's way of working is based on, if you read John Boyd's you know, long presentations that he used to do to the War College at the Pentagon, it's all about being clear about what the commander's intent is, okay? So that we want the product owner to create a clear intent. And for the teams, it's all about how do they line up and figure out how to support that objective, doing it their own way. So, you know, General Patton was famous for telling people, don't tell people how to take that hill. Just tell them which hill we need to take, and you'll be amazed at the creativity they come up with. And so Scrum hmm. is the same way. Remember, it comes out of fighter pilot training. Is there a territory that Scrum can't take? So it, it certainly like deep roots in, you know, battles are not won at the green table. There's no plan that survives contact with the enemy and this sort of modern military tradition and its application to engineering and software engineering problems is very clear from your work and the work of others. But it seems like such a sensible way to run one's life from getting things done and Alan's sort of approach to just prioritizing and knocking stuff out to um, an array of other applications. Like, where, where can't this go? I mean, writers should write books this way. Buildings should get built this way. Uh, heart surgery, uh, passing a law through Congress. It's like, have you found some boundaries or have you found some very unusual applications? We, uh, we found many unusual applications, but essentially there are no boundaries. I mean, uh, is there any boundaries to getting things done for an individual, the basic principles in there, they're just applicable no matter what you're doing, right? So at one mm. level, Scrum is just getting things done for a team, right? And the basic principles are universal. Now, when you actually go to do it, we had a recent incident in one of the biggest hospitals in Boston. They came to me and they said, we get 82 surgery units and turnaround time is about an hour. And it costs us about, a, I don't know, twenty or $30,000 an hour for a surgery suite. And they got 82 of them. And they wow. do three or four surgeries a day. So that thing is sitting idle three or four hours a day, Thirty times 30,000 times 82. What is that number? It's a big number. We've been trying to cut that time for 20 years. <laughs> and people say it's impossible. And do uh, you think Scrum could help? So I said, I've done a lot of work in medicine. And I actually, even when I've been in the software domain, I've been working in hospitals. And actually, I've written some grants for <laughs> surgery centers. So I said, we could do something with Scrum, but I need a dedicated team that is totally focused. And I know that the people that need to be on this team are going to be the docs, the nurses, the cleaning people, and so forth. And they have the normal day job, but I need them at least two hours a day, every day, same people on the same team. They said, we can do that. So we got the docs and the cleaning people and the nurses and anybody else involved on a team 
And in two one-week sprints, we cut the one hour to a half an hour, fifty to twenty thousand dollars times four. It's probably an extra surgery a day, so times five, times eighty-two per day, times thirty for a month. (laughs) That's tens of millions of dollars floating immediately to the bottom line as pure profit for the hospital. Yeah, it's just magic. Can we talk a little bit to contrast, I mean, in my humble opinion, as an observer and a student of three big movements that started in the 80s or 90s, let's say, and have landed in the present as the sort of canonical ways of accomplishing things, certainly for the Silicon Valley tribe, which I consider myself part of. And I think if someone's like graduating, just wanting to start a company or whatever, I think there's three broad families of ideas. One of them's yours. And I think people use... Agile and Scrum for just company building. They certainly run product and engineering teams that way, but I think that clever founders think of their company at that level also. There's language like, you know, let the fires burn and this and that that people are using in blitzscaling from Reed Hoffman and from other folks. So that's one thread. A second thread is, um, and I guess I hadn't thought about this, but you are essentially a contemporary of Taiichi Ono and the Toyota people as they started writing about what they had done with Lean and then it makes its way to Lean Startup and there's Blank and Reese the last... 10 or 20 years talking this way. And they also talk about miracles and they talk about disproportionate outcomes from resources. And they talk about contact with the customer, perhaps more about the sort of process methodology that would get you the team to be more productive is instead focusing on, you know, the key backlog item that we want to solve for tomorrow. Lean. And then a third stream, which I don't know how often it gets included or presented to you as a a related family, but it's the um, human-centered design and IDO and Tom Kelly and, and all that stuff, make a prototype and put it in front of someone and make another one and change, change it. And money's less of a driver in their approach where maybe in lean, you got to like make money as soon as possible. And your approach is about shipping and maybe the idea guys are about making. But I wonder if you feel there are some harmonics between these or well, if you just I, think I they're totally different. Yeah, I think Scrum is the intersection of all three of those. Let me give you an example. The term Scrum, we adopted in 1993 based on a paper by professors Takeuchi Nanaka who had been going around the world looking at lean hardware companies, companies like Mm -hmm. Honda, Toyota, 3M in the United States. And they described how those teams were set up and particularly how the management approached uh, working with those teams. And we said, you know, that is a perfect description about what we're trying to do. And it describes it in a way that we can sell it to Ford Motor Company management, who is one of our biggest customers. And as soon as we agreed on that, I realized that everything in Lean now is related to Scrum. And I had not studied Taichi Ono before then, but as soon as I started looking at what he did, a lot of what John Boyd and the fighter pilots do is right out of Taichi Ono's playbook. <laughs> okay. And so today, we in every Scrum Master course, the training I do, a good chunk of it is Lean. At the same time, the first Scrum team, their job was to innovate, create a completely new product that no one has ever seen before. We didn't even know what it was. So that process of creation is, you know, the people at IDEO and places like that were were doing that kind of thing constantly. And what's happened now, if you read uh, Google's book on their weekly innovation spreads, it's basically Scrum, okay, to do innovation. So Scrum is actually brought tooling that can actually make the innovation cycle more predictable and powerful. So there's definitely an intersection of those three themes today in a well-implemented Scrum environment. So making software, making innovation, running a production line, making cars, let's say. Um, Yeah, let me give you a really interesting example. 
I'm working now on a on articles, papers, and presentations with the CEO of a restaurant in London that has completely adopted Scrum to run the restaurant. And wow. it's been totally amazing. They have no managers now, only Scrum teams. Everything is done by teams. Financial success of the restaurant has been so good within six months or so that their investors now trying to launch two more restaurants. As we look at the implementation and what that CEO did, a restaurant is really very similar to a, a Toyota protection line, except that food is what's going down the line. Wow. And what we're measuring is cycle time of everything, you know? person walks to the front door, what's the average time to get seated? What's the average time to first order? What's the average time to getting the food? And they are so fast now, when I go in there, they have about 100 items on the menu. Any one of them will appear within 10 minutes. Incredible. So I don't order a full menu. I just order <laughs> course one, maybe a course two. <laughs> See how that evolves. While I'm eating course one, I'm ordering course two, and that's there before I finish course one. So the whole restaurant is a lean production facility, but Scrum has been the thing that brought tremendous motivation to the people. The people now have a stake. 25% of the profits every month go to the people. They have a wow. stake in the company. Uh, they're all learning how to do each other's jobs, which is one of the fundamental things Taichiono taught his teams. They're all growing in their capability to eventually run a restaurant. That's amazing. Touching that one a little more deeply, the everyone can do everything idea, or at least everyone can understand everything, or everyone's at least like, a, you know, you might have a designer on your team, but you're also responsible for some level of aesthetic judgment and some, you know, crappy PowerPoint right. design, something like that, all roles. I mean, that is so different from the historical, like the Fordism, right? I mean, there was another age, the sort of age of Henry Ford and process engineering, which transformed restaurants in a certain way. But here it's the front lines. It's every decision maker who's continuously transforming the organization. And perhaps the least important person then, once the system is in motion, is the manager. Fewer managers, less overhead. Like the ideal yeah. manager is a manager who's not doing anything anymore. You know, to some extent that's true, but they, leadership is critical, and particularly leadership at the top. You have to provide an environment that, where this can actually operate, and that means mm -hmm. you, need, you need to implement the strong values. Things need to be open, transparent, visible. Uh, people need to trust one another. In order to create that environment, there needs to be respect for people and not putting them down, listening to them, taking their input. And it's out of that openness, transparency, respect that people then have the courage to speak up. And once you get everybody being really honest, then the organization can really focus and commit to really delivering. So unless you have leadership at the top that can create that environment, it will not happen. And we've had many scrum implementations which have booted up well, and then you get new management and you get some micromanaging, you know, old traditional person in there, and it shuts down the scrum within a few weeks. What seems so amazing, though, I mean, I agree, the leader is so important, but to listen to your narrative, you know, you often make contact with an organization where change is needed. And one of the first things that you're counseling the leaders is restraint, withdraw from a lot of things that you thought were managerial duties, come back, that provides a level of space, ask for things like visibility and a certain ritual rhythm, and the culture will change because things will work. 
culture spreads, everyone sees is attracted to a thing that works. And perhaps on the other end of that change, when a system is really humming, you still kind of need some level of policing and correction of the occasional bad behavior. But perhaps the managerial job starts getting even more scale that way. Like, you know, maybe in the beginning, you're just running two teams. And after a while, when the culture is spreading, you can you as the manager might be looking after 10 because there's like nothing to do. You're just like going to the sprint reviews, right? What happens in a company is that the traditional managers need to become, in order to create agile leadership, they need to become coaches of teams. Mm. They need to understand how this needs to work, and then they need to set it up so that it really does work. An example, I was at Adobe a while back and given a talk there, and a senior manager in the room said, what's the role of management at Scrum? And I said, well, is Adobe set up to maximize the delivery of valuable product to the market? And he said, no. And I said, well, your job as senior management is to make that happen. And he said, well, that would be a full-time job. And I said, well, <laughs> what else are they paying you for, right? <laughs> he said, I get it. I got it. Got my answer. <laughs> there are always problems, and the leadership has to deal with them. And uh, one of the funny things that's happened recently is our CEO is going to make now, which I was CEO for 10 years, but now I've turned it over to my son, the co-author of the Scrum book, and he's like, we need some managers around here. You know, occasionally we need to fire people. Who's going to do that? And there's certain nasty things that have to be done. And uh, we're actually in the process. We don't want managers, but we do want more senior people that have management experience who we can train to be agile leaders in the organization to deal with the problems, particularly as the organization grows larger. Jeff, it has been a pleasure talking to you and hearing from you about your ideas that have been so impactful. I know that you must have talked so many times to so many executives about this in a lot of formats, but this stuff is so important, and it has yet to spread through everything, which I think it needs right. to. So thank you for being on In The Know. Well, I'm grateful to be here, and it's great to talk to you.